Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Justin J. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Nothing lasts forever, especially a winning streak. Choosing when to walk away is one of the most difficult decisions you can make in life, whether it's from a blackjack table or a successful athletic career. This next guest is an accomplished professional surfer with three world titles. In 2018, he made one of the most consequential decisions of his life when he chose to retire from the professional world tour. Second acts and self-reinvention can be terrifying, especially if you define yourself by what you do. He made surfing his career, but he eventually realized that he's much more than just the sum of his trophies. Today, surfer, father, and the three-time world champion with one of the most unmistakable laughs in the game, Mr. Mick Fanning. All right, we're, we're rolling. Mick Fanning. Good to see you, man. You too, brother. Really? You been well? Yeah, it's been a difficult year, but uh, that's nothing new. You know? <laughs> um, I haven't seen you since Xander's been born, man. Congratulations. Welcome Thank to the club. Much. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's, um, uh, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you've had so far that you didn't expect? Yeah, look, I guess we've been pretty lucky. He's been, um, he's been such a little gem of a kid, but... Um, yeah, look, that, that first sort of week, two weeks, where that, that jet lag, <laughs> that, yeah. like that sleep deprivation, there's nothing like that in the world. Like, I've been on planes and stuff like that, and, like, it's out of this world how tired you get. But other than that, it's, it's been awesome, you know. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been fun. It's such a – I think those first couple of weeks are such – it's such an amazing, magical time and the lack of sleep. And it's just such a whirlwind, beautiful moment. And, you know, talk to me about the irony of having such an amazing personal chapter while the world is upside down. I mean, how, what was that like having having a baby during COVID? It was, yeah, look, I guess I guess the, the one thing is, is that people all sit there and they go, look, 2020 was the worst year of my life. And and I understand it, like, you know, people, there was, there was some really shit things that happened last year, but for me personally, was probably the best year of my life, you know, I, I got to stay home, I got to watch um, Xander grow and breathe belly the whole pregnancy, uh, didn't miss one scan, didn't miss, like, any, any of the important milestones, and then to be there with not, oh, I've got to get going, or you know, got to take off after he's born or anything like that was just, just to be in that moment was just incredible. And yeah, you sort of didn't have any, didn't have any um, FOMO of going somewhere or, you know, we, everything was just home and it was, it was a yeah. beautiful time just to be, you know, get, get to um, know him and get to know everything without any expectations of the outside world. It was such a strange year because it, it just it affected everybody so differently. You know, like some people were relatively business as usual, and then some people were you know struck with horrific tragedy. And you know, it's like you know, for me personally, I just was like, 
got to spend a lot of time with my son and, you know, maybe, maybe too much sometimes, you know, like, I, I think at one point I was venting to my mom a couple of weeks ago and I think she must've mentioned something to my dad and, you know, he called me, which is, you know, pretty rare and in, in his own kind of emotionally stunted way, tried to give me a little pep talk. And I was like, dad, I'm going to just stop you right there. Like I'm 100% aware of what an amazing time this is and, and, and how special it is to get to spend this much concentrated time. But, you know, there's such thing as, too much of a good thing, you know, like even a blessing, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, I guess we sort of, as humans, we always think the grass is always greener. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I think 2020 will go down as uh, the year of uh, a COVID-19 sourdough bread and uh, <laughs> podcasting. You know, there's a, a lot of, a lot of new podcasts on the scene. I know. hundred percent. How's that been going for you? Um, yeah, look, I, I sort of, because I was home, I sort of had time. For me, when when the world sort of shut down, I guess some people were like, oh, it's time just to do nothing, where I sort of looked at it as to get on the front foot and, and try and um, do some things that I might never have done before, just to have a look at, see if I enjoyed them, see if I didn't. And, um, yeah, the podcast thing sort of, I didn't really want to sign up to a full-time podcast, but then um, it just sort of happened. And, um, yeah, look, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy learning about people. It was really fun doing that with um, Sam McIntosh and the people that we got to speak to was, was awesome. Yeah, I mean, you're you're obviously, a, you know, really a personable guy and you've, You've had a lot of experience, you know, in front of the camera doing interviews and whatnot, but is there a little different skill set that you've developed that you didn't know that you had? Or is there, what are some of the challenges of, of doing a podcast and, you know, flexing skills that you thought you maybe didn't have to, that you didn't have or? Um, yeah, I don't think I've got that many skills in it. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I I guess the, the biggest thing is just being a good listener and being able to shape questions around what the person's actually talking. Um, And you sit there and some people come in with a whole list of questions and it's, and they've got to get these questions, bang, 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 bang. And yeah, I sort of like to just let it, let it flow and, and wherever it goes, just keep talking down these sort of pathways or, or railroads, whatever you want to call them and, um, and just see where they end up. And sometimes people don't go, don't know they want to go down this path and they get to the end of it. It's like, Oh, did that just happen? <laughs> it's yeah. sort of cool. I mean, it's, it's a unique, it's a unique platform because I, I grew up on talk shows. I love whether it's, you know, David Letterman or, you know, Tom Snyder or Bob Costas or Phil Donahue. Like I, I love all the great talk show hosts. And, but you know, you realize that format is just, it's so stringent. There was, a pre-produced interview and then they do their plug and there's like the, the, the quip or the story. And then it's like a six minute segment and they cut to commercial. And, you know, that's been a challenge for me of just like, while people are talking, I'm like, wow, this person's been rambling for 11 minutes straight. Like, is that great? Is that interesting? Do I cut them off? You know, and it's, it's a constant learning curve of what, what the platform will support and what the listeners want. You know, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, you just take criticism as it comes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess I guess with podcasts, yeah, as long as people are talking interesting things, then people will listen. And I, and I think a lot of things with podcasts too is that you can put them on and keep going about your work every day where it used to be you just used to listen to the radio and do your driving, where now people put on podcasts and it just eliminates so much time when you're especially driving long distances like podcasts is what i listen to oh that's great yeah um well it seems like i mean in addition to podcasting it seems like you've been able to to make a pretty smooth transition into your post-professional surfing career and not uh, not every athlete's been able to do that you know especially here in the states you see a lot of athletes that they open a steak restaurant or they you know invest in a car dealership or something and you know it seems like you've made some really smart choices i know you have a real estate portfolio and you were one of the early investors in the the balter brewing company which sold recently and you know i don't want to put you on the spot but i think it's safe to say you probably you probably did okay on that we did all right (laughs) how were you able to you know avoid some of the missteps that a lot of professional athletes make after their career ends you know do you do you have a business background you have a really strong do you have a strong team in your corner? I mean, how are you able to do that? Um, no, look, I guess, I guess when I, when I started the tour, right, um, always knew there was going to be an end date 
And so, like, you know, you, you see so many different athletes, they're just, like, living in the moment. They're like, all right, I've, I'm going to have this, I'm going to compete until I'm, you know, however old, and I've got all this money now, so I'm just going to go and spend, spend, spend. And I didn't think about it that way, you know. I sort of, if I got a lump sum of money, then I'd try and invest into real estate, uh, especially in my early years. Real estate was... It was the only thing I could understand because I could see it and I could feel it. And even if the house burnt down, I've still got the land, you know, so yeah. I didn't lose all my money where like stocks and and um, racehorses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't do it. You know, it's there's just too many, too many variables that I don't understand. So I, that's why I sort of just stuck with with real estate and buying real estate. And then. I guess from the, the transition point of view, I actually got lucky. I, you know, I guess having a sponsor like Rip Curl and Red Bull where I was able to have six months off before I decided I was going to fully retire, it sort of gave me a taste of what the other side was like. It gave me a, a look into learning what, like, when you come off tour, you're like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to, no, 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 no. You know, you, you've got all these places you want to go, all these waves you want to surf, all these projects that you want to do that you can't do while you're on tour. And, and then you start to realise it's like, well, that one's not going to work because of this or this one's not going to work because of that. Why don't we concentrate on this one and do this one as best we possibly could? So it was sort of, you know, obviously... I didn't figure it all out by myself. I have some really good people in my corner that sort of give me advice and make sure that I don't go down a, a, just a silly path just because I'm hot-headed and, and really want to do it at that moment. Um, Emotional investing. Exactly, yeah. So a lot of the times the projects that I was I was trying to commit to, it was something if I thought about it for like a week or two weeks – and I was still as passionate after two weeks, then I'd go for it. Your heart's in it. Trust your gut. Yeah, yeah. But then other times I'd get all fired up and then I'd wake up the next day and be like, that's the dumbest idea. <laughs> you know? <And> so um, <laughs> that was, that was it, it took a, a lot to um, learn to go through all that. But it, it's been fun. I really enjoyed it. And then, yeah, and then I got to go back on tour for a year and, and really start planning out different little things because I knew in my own mind I was going to retire in 2018. I didn't really let too many people know, but... Um, let me let me stop it right there. How I'm curious how how you came up with that number. In retrospect, are you happy with that decision? Do you feel like you stuck around too long? Would you've liked to have had one more year? Like, are you are you happy? How did you come up with that? Because that's that must be one of the most difficult decisions for a professional athlete to make. You know, when to pull the plug and start the next chapter of their life. Yeah, it's to be truly honest, it's scary as hell. It's scary as hell, but. For me, the scariest part for me was in the start of 2016 where I was like, I don't have enough energy. You know, I came off a, a really shit year in, in 2015 where I lost my brother and, you know, obviously the shark attack and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I was emotionally drained. Um, and so at the start of 2016, I was like, I don't have the energy to do a full year on tour. And if I do go and do it, I can guarantee it's going to be my worst year on tour. And um, so in 2016, I rang my boss at, at Rip Curl and I was like, look, this is what I'm thinking. And he was like, look, if that's what you want to do, we'll support you 100%. That's and Yeah. And then, um, and then it was like, all right, now I've got to ring the WSL and see if they're into it because, you know, sometimes it's just like once you're out, you're out, you know. Um, yeah. there's, no, there's no coming back. And so I had to ring the WSL and be like, hey, this is, this is my thoughts and, and they'll, they backed me 100% as well. So it's sort of that, that was the scariest part. Once I did that half year, I uh, got back on tour in 2017 full time and I think it was the... The second event, I was sitting in a, in a car park in Western Australia waiting for my heat. I was first here in the morning and it was the most incredible day. There was, you know, waves were pumping um, and I had to sit in this car park for four hours and wait for my heat. 
And I, I was just looking around at the world. I'm like, fuck this. I'm done. <laughs> and so that was it. That was my, that was my thinking right there. So I, I surfed out the full year and, um, and it was at that point. So you knew. You, yeah. you pretty much knew in your heart. I mean, everyone was supportive after the fact, which is terrific, but you pretty much you knew when to pull the plug and you're comfortable with that decision. Yeah, no one came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, all right, you're done or anything like that. It was on my terms and I just I just lost that fire. I didn't have that fire to, to go in and put 100% in each and every day to go and try and win a world title. Um, and to me, not giving it 100%, I knew I was cheating myself and that wasn't fun either. So I was just like, all right, just just rip the Band-Aid off and get out of here, you old bugger. <laughs> and also, it seems like the, the option of having a family really isn't conducive to that lifestyle either. I know there's some people that have been able to kind of pull it off, but it must be really difficult. Moving forward, now that you're a dad, like I know that you're not on the tour anymore and you don't have that grind, but... You know, surfing involves a lot of travel. Um, how how's Brie feel about that? How are you, how are you going to reconcile that? Yeah, look, it, it's definitely a learning curve. Like uh, I always tell the boys, I'm like, I don't know how you guys competed on tour because I just in the, especially in those first um, couple of months, first few months, I didn't want to leave home. I, like I didn't even want to go for a surf. I was surfing out in front of my house, which the waves are pretty average, you know, ninety nine percent of the time. But I would just go out for ten minutes out the front, just because I didn't want to miss anything. Yeah. And so I don't know how the guys on tour would go and and compete and this and that and and so like I have a lot of respect for that. But um, yeah, look, I guess on the travel side with Bree, like you know, she understands my job, and it's. It sort of comes back to if if it's something that I truly believe in and something that I um, think is really beneficial for the family, then she'll support her hundred percent. If it's just if it's just me, oh, I'm going to go for a boys' weekend. She's like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> but, and it's the and it's the distinction between those two that makes all the difference, right? Exactly, exactly. You got to word it right, people. No, I'm joking. Um, well. That's amazing. Well, listen, so since the last time I saw you, you know, I missed you for a couple of years on the North Shore, but since then, I've, I finally put out the book that I've been working on for 10 years, and it's called HI1K, 10 Years, as a, a thousand pictures from the North Shore of Hawaii, and it was just, I'm so glad that I got to get the timing down. We, we premiered it, like, the December right before COVID, and it was amazing to be able to be over there and kind of give this, I, I saw it as like a tribute to all of the amazing people that kind of brought me into their sphere and were candid and let me document their lives. And, you know, you were a big part of that You're There's some amazing, amazing photos of you in, in the book. And we, we sat down for an interview a couple years ago and there was, there's one quote that really stuck out. It's like a really beautiful moment. And I just want to read it to you and get your thoughts on it. And so we sat down and you said, in 2015, it was a really heavy moment, but it was also incredible. I came in from a heat with Kelly and all my best friends had flown over. It was the day after my brother had passed away and everything was really, really raw. And that moment in my eyes to come in and see everyone, it felt like I'd won in life. Like, what a moment. You know? Yeah. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm spinning up motion <laughs> right now. Um, yeah, look, it, that, was, that was a moment. It didn't matter if I won or lost or... Like, I didn't know anyone was coming over. Um, and, you know, I found out my my brother passed away the, the, the morning before. And, and so everything was extremely raw. Everything was so heightened, you know. I was like, I, I was trying to look after my mum who was there. Um, and then I had incredible friends looking after me, like Taylor Knox and, and Jared House and, um, you know, Fletch and and Neil from Rip Curl, like, and then all my other mates that are on tour, like Paco, Kyoten, um, Bede, and, oh, Bede actually got injured too just before that. You know, he broke his pelvis. Yeah, it was just a, it was just a cluster uh, of, a, of a year, and there was, like, yeah, Bede broke his pelvis, and then Owen had his head injury. There was, like, all kinds of things going on around, and then that was sort of, like, the, the last big apple that just sort of exploded. And um, so, yeah, like, to... To 
you know, I was sort of just hanging on by the smallest of smallest of threads and then to come in and see all my friends there was just like, I didn't ask them to come, I didn't know they were coming, they were just there. And that's, that's you know, when, when people do that, that's, you've done something right in life and, um, yeah, as I said, at that moment I thought I'd won in life. I didn't care about no contest. A really beautiful moment. I mean, so you know, Mick, you've had you've had a lot of a lot of tragedy and a, a lot of loss in your life. And you know, the one thing that I've witnessed firsthand being friends with you and getting to be around you is you seem to have this amazing ability to kind of compartmentalize that pain. And you know, I was I was in Hawaii. I was on the beach that day in fifteen in two thousand fifteen, and you know, you had to paddle out and compete at pipe in a very important heat, and you just lost your brother. And like, how does someone find the strength to to temporarily set aside something just so horrific and be able to focus a hundred percent on competition for that one moment? Because I mean, that's not something that that everybody, not many, not many people are able to do that. Like, where does that come from? Um, yeah, look, I guess it was um, it was something that I learned. You know, um, when I lost my first brother in '98. Uh, I was, I guess, I, I hate this saying, and everyone's like, oh, be strong, be strong, you know. And I sort of took it as, all right, you can't show any emotion. Like, I was 17 at the time, and, you know, I felt like I had to look after my whole family, look after my friends, and people would be crying all around me, and I was just just blank-faced. I, and I put up this wall that I didn't even realise I'd put there, and... Um, and so even though it was such a shit moment, I learned how to, um, I learned how to differentiate my feelings to other people's, um, because sometimes I would, if I fell into those feelings with those other people, then I'd be a complete mess. And so I learned that as we went along, but then as as time went on I, I learned to pull down that wall and, and be able to trust people and tell people my feelings and stuff like that and show emotion and and then um, I learned to be able to put separate life and work I, I tried really hard for them not to not to mix with each other you know I, I was like if I'm going to work doesn't matter what happened in life up until that point I say I'm clocking in for the work day I was fine and um you know some days it, some days it didn't work but most of the time it did and um and yeah I guess on that specific day in 2015 I just it was it was it was different you know I I, I didn't feel that much to be honest I was pretty numb but yeah. um, but in saying that I could just I knew my brother was with me at, at that point um, and and so I knew that he would protect me out in the water and then once I got to the beach he, he looked after my mum and my family and stuff um, and so I was actually really calm in that moment um, I knew I did, all I had to do was just go surfing and I was surfing for him at that moment as well. So, yeah, it was sort of, I knew he was with me, knew I could go surfing and just I just wanted to put on the best performance I could possibly do for him. That must have exacerbated the emotion of having all your friends there as well. I mean, because there's a difference between repressing emotion and being able to compartmentalize it and address it later on, you know, and it sounds like you really... It meant a lot to you to have all your friends there. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and it was another thing too. Like one of one of my tricks that I always used was, you know, it's, you know, sometimes you 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 look in the mirror or something, and you're like, oh god, I know something's right there, but I don't want to deal with it right then and there. Uh, I want to deal with it later. Um, so I sort of had this emotional or this uh, mental mental room, right? And I have a, a, che- a treasure chest. And in the treasure chest, anything that I didn't feel like dealing with at that moment, 
I'd just put it in the treasure chest and I'd go back to it when I had more confidence in myself or I had courage to deal with it or I had time to deal with it. And so somehow I could just put the latch on it and I wouldn't think about it until I had that time to go and deal with it. It was So that was one of the things that I learned through, um, you know, talking about separating life and work. I could just put those life things in this treasure chest and then, yeah, once I've finished work, I'll go back to it. Yeah, I mean, but that's not something that everybody can do. I mean, that's a very difficult process, you know, especially when you're dealing with, with something as emotional and passionate as you are about what you do, you know, surfing. Yeah. It's not, it's not just, it's not just, yeah, sometimes it doesn't it's work. not just a day job. You know I mean? You're not, you're not like going to an insurance company and you're like, Oh, I'll deal with this later on. I mean, it's like, yeah, I feel like your, your passion and your life of surfing is so wrapped up in, in who you are. I'm sure that must be. Really yeah. It, it's, it's really different. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, that was my job. So I looked at it as my job. Uh, there were growing up when I was young, I thought my whole being just revolved around being a surfer on tour. Yeah. Then I realized um, it was only something that that I did. It wasn't who I was. So that's the way I could differentiate it all. Yeah, I mean, this has been a pretty introspective year for me too. You know, like I think having so much time on your hands, not necessarily free time, but just time away from other people kind of forces you to take stock and things. And, you know, I had this realization personally that I, I realized you know, maybe, maybe I'm not destined for greatness, you know, maybe I'm destined for pretty goodness, you know, but without (laughs) a lot of, without a lot of relative effort, you know, and, and there's something to be said for that. That's afforded me a really nice lifestyle and and time with my family and time with my friends and and leisure time, you know, being a B plus at life, it's, it's not all that bad, but. But who's judging that? (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm putting it in perspective, but you know, the point I'm getting at is that I don't have three world titles and, you know, I started to, to kind of reflect on some of the decisions that I've made throughout my life of like, wow, you know, what if, if I had been a little bit more dedicated or if I had sacrificed a little bit more, you know, like what would I have been able to achieve? And, you know, my question is, do you ever grapple with any of these same concepts, but kind of inverse in terms of sacrifices that you did make? that affected friendships or relationships or things that you had to put on the back burner in order to be the best in the world? Like did being a world champion involve an immense amount of personal sacrifice? Um, it did. Look, I'll, I'll put it this way to you. Just be, because you become a world champion doesn't mean you're a good person. You know, achieving, achieving sporting greatness doesn't mean you're a good person. Um, and, you know, in, in 2000, at the end of 2007, like I was so like driven just to win my first world title and I got to the end of it and I had my fiance at the time uh, and my friends and my family, they were like, all right, we're going to get you back next year. And I was just like, what do you mean? Like I've, I've gone on and, and done what I wanted to do and everyone's happy and smiling and this and that. And I, I was just so focused on me and myself that I didn't even realize when I was, you know, I'd go out to dinner. I wasn't in the room. I wasn't there at all. And so all that sacrifice and all that, you know, all that focusing just on me, started just eating away at all my relationships. And so I was, I was gutted um, when, when all that sort of came out. And so in 2008, I was just, I tried to make up for it and I went totally the other way. And I sacrificed, I, sacrif- I sort of sacrificed my career, but that didn't make me happy either. So I, I was learning how to do this juggling act of, you know, do I, do I just sacrifice all my friends or do I sacrifice um, my career just so I'm happy or they're happy or, you know, who's, who's becoming happy? And, and that's, that's another reason why I um, learned to differentiate the two. It's like, you know, when I'm competing, I'm competing, you know. And then when I'm with friends or with family, I'm with friends or family. And that's why I didn't want the two to mix because I'd had that pain and I've had that 
um, that breakdown in relationships that just didn't just didn't work. So sacrifice is one. You know, I think people don't realise, like, yeah, we sacrifice to become great sporting people, but you also sacrifice to be great at relationships too. Like, you know, sometimes you don't want to go shopping with your <laughs> wife. And it's like, well, I should because it will make her happy, you know. And, and so you do that a little bit. And um, But, it's yeah, it's just balancing that, balancing those um, sacrifices is, is it going to make me 100% happy but or is it not? But if I do sacrifice these things and do go shopping with the wife, then that's going to make her happy. And seeing her happy is going to make me happy. So it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny way to look at it. Um, I hope that made sense. But Let me ask you this, though. So was there a payoff, though? So, you know, the sacrifices that, that you had to make in terms of some of your relationships when you got the title, was there a payoff or was it an empty victory? I mean, did, did, did it make it all worth it? Or was there a point where you're just like, uh, this is not this is not what I want to do with my life. This is not where I want to be. I mean, there's, there's, there's a huge value in personal relationships and there's a huge um, value placed on that trophy. How do you, how do you balance those two things? Yeah, look, um, it was a huge learning curve um, for sure. And it wasn't until like 2009, I, I looked at it totally different and I, I worked really hard to sort of do both, like do the personal relationships, but also do do the, the surfing that I needed to do or work. And um, I really enjoyed both of them. And that year was a, a really good year for me. That year was one of the ones where I, I look at that world title and be like, wow, that was, that was a huge feat for so many different reasons, where 2007 was all about me. <laughs> so yeah. it was great to include my friends and family at different points around the work. They weren't at work with me, but they were around the work. And that was that was something that I was extremely proud of, to be able to walk away at the end of 2019 and be like, my relationships are good and my work's good and I'm happy with both of them. So... Yeah. And was there, was there a point when you made a conscious decision to shed a certain party lifestyle and really focus on going and being a professional athlete and getting another title? And cause it seems like what I've noticed in the time that I was on the North shore, it seemed like there was this kind of sea change that happened sometime between 2005 and 2010, not just with you, but let's say like Andy Irons, for instance, like he was able to dominate the sport with, just an immense amount of raw talent and drive, mm-hmm. but he did not have personalized dietitians and trainers and coaches and a lot of these things that, that have kind of become ubiquitous with these, with these younger kids today. And it seemed like there's like this sea change where there used to be a disconnect between the lifestyle of a professional surfer and the lifestyle of a professional athlete in terms of like how you would think of a basketball player or a football player. And they seem a lot more, closely intertwined these days. Was there a point when you really decided to f- focus on the training part of, of chasing that title? Is that a, is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, an exact moment in time. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I guess, um, look, when I first got on tour, I was sort of like, anyone was having a beer, call Mick, he'll come and have a beer. And that was something that, it, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And I made poor decisions on when to do that. And, and I got injured in 2004, um, tore my hamstring off the bone. And I'm sitting at home and, you know, I c- can't walk. I'm stuck on the couch getting fat. And, and I, remember, I remember watching a heat where I was against um, Danny Wills. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching the heat. And in my own mind, when I was surfing that heat, I felt like I got absolutely flogged, like, just so I got blown out of the water pretty much. And I rewatched the heat and I was like, hey, I was a lot closer than what I actually thought I was. And then I started looking back into that heat and two nights before I was down at the Rock Food in France partying and I was still slightly hungover for that heat. And so my timing was off 
and I had this immense guilt just come over me. I just, I, I felt like sick and I couldn't sleep. I was just like, just so angry at myself. And this was all before I started the rehab and everything on, on my leg. And I went into rehab and I was just like, you know what, if I get the opportunity to get back on tour, I'm never feeling that guilt ever again. When it, when it was happening, you thought, oh, well, this is a blowout and there's no way this was within my reach. Mm-hmm. And then after the fact, you realized that had you made different choices that things might have turned out differently? Exactly. Yeah. From, from that moment on, I was like, yeah, w- once I get back on tour, I'm going to put my work first and go and do the best I possibly can in my work so I don't have those sleepless, guilty nights ever again. <laughs> and... Um, and then if I win or lose or whatever, and I feel like having a beer after the fact, then I can go and do it without any guilt. And that was my thing. And, and people probably saw that and were like, oh, you've got to be fit and healthy. You've got to do this. Because I, I had a pretty good run after after that. And um, and now it's just like everyone's just professional. <laughs> it's like yeah. we, we know too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say that is, that's a pretty funny story in that that's just the exact opposite experience of 99% of surfers where they would actually see video of themselves and be like, oh, I, I did better than I thought I did. You know yeah. I mean? Like everyone always thinks that they're ripping and then it's, it's pretty horrid to, to see yourself self-surfing. So that's, that's a funny perspective. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty honest when I uh, see myself surfing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, well, cause there was even a, you know, one of the quotes that, that you had given me for the Hawaii book, as you were talking about, like, yeah, we basically just got to kind of get paid to travel the world and party. And, you know, obviously that, that came to an end. Um, what are, what are some of the other changes that you noticed in the North shore over the course of the 10 years since I've been shooting? Cause I, I felt like it was a really interesting time to get the document and I did it kind of just by accident, but it, there were so many major shifts that happened, you know, in terms of the, ASP turning to the WSL and social media coming into rise and the Brazilians taking over and then almost the complete collapse of a lot of the surf brands. And then the culture changed so much as well. And, and I talked to a lot of people and did interviews and, you know, they, they'd said things like social media and real estate values when people couldn't necessarily afford to live there anymore. But I mean, what are some of the major changes in the last 10 years have changed in the North Shore in your eyes? Um, yeah, look, I guess... I guess during the, the noughties, the, the surfing industry was just going like this. It was like they were throwing money at everything. Um, you know, oh, yeah, sweet, give that guy 200 grand for doing this or that. And then all of a sudden the GFC hit and everyone's just like, uh-oh, and just all the money just came back <laughs> into the brands. And, and that was a big thing. And then obviously, uh, yeah, real estate was a big one, but... I think the first times that I used to go to the North Shore, it was it was a he- really heavy place. It was like you did not, you still don't like you. The the local guys ran such a tight ship. Like if you stepped out of line, you were just like, oh god, where's the slap coming from? You know, and and then yeah, all this money and more attention came to it, and then that started dwindling down the fact because there was so much more attention on this strip there were so many more cameras and and so you know what guys were getting away with earlier in the piece they couldn't get away with that anymore you know it was like it just it was on every camera you know this you, you see it and if someone punches even have a verbal disagreement these days it's on social media before they even hit the beach yeah. and it's like it's, they just can't control control it that much anymore. So that I think that's been the biggest thing. Um, you know, I, I really like the days where um, you know you, you sort of just you you'd surf and you'd make sure, like you'd take a mental note of who was out in the water. Because if you dropped in on one of those people, it was just like, oh god, I'm dead. <laughs> um, and you. you it was a really big, like, learn of respect thing, and and um, it was really cool, especially respecting your elders, respecting the locals, and and then it sort of yeah, opened up, and 
yeah, it's just, it was just it's just huge, huge changes. I think social media is something that's changed the world forever, but I think it changed that that strip of of the world immensely. Yeah, I mean, I feel so lucky to have gotten to document that time period. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it, it's pretty special, you know. It, it, some of the the fondest memories on tour from that time in winter, being over there. You know, I, I go back and look at photos and stuff, and just, you know, I guess for me in my early years on tour, I was so lucky. I got to live with Andy Irons and Bruce Irons and and see how the superstars of the North Shore got to live and, you know, like these puppy dogs looking up at the big dogs. It was, uh, it was pretty incredible. Um, is there one standout memory that you have on the North Shore that, I mean, like when, you, when, you're, when you're 60 and, and your, your kids are asking you about what it was like, is there one standout memory that kind of is defining of your time over there? Um, look, the first one that comes to mind was standing in the yard and, and watching Paco win his world title. That was that because I was just, I was a passenger of, of his story and just being able to, to sit and just, you know, just feel all that emotion and feel everything else. I'd never been in that situation and um, to have like one of your best friends go through it and, you know, you're riding the emotion with his, his wife and, you know, family and, and normally you're competing. I wasn't competing. I'd already lost. So I was got to sit in the yard and feel that. Yeah. That's a moment that was just like, like that. It was, it was, I don't know. It's sort of, for me, it, it still brings up a lot of joy and almost tears of joy in, in a sense. But there's so many incredible moments, you know, I was in the house when, Andy won the showdown against Kelly and, and you know, all that sort of stuff. That was incredible as well. But, yeah, for the one moment, I think seeing Parco win and being able to run down and, and give give one of my best mates that hug of of winning a world title was, was something incredible. I think that, that says a lot that the memory you remember is one of your best friends winning a title and not and not yourself. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like... Because you're so in the moment, you don't get all the different feelings coming through. You know, you just like, as we are talking before, you're at work. And so you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't, you don't get to take everything else in. And so, yeah, that, that, that's probably why I, I look at that moment as I could really appreciate it for everything that was in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I witnessed that a little bit. There was one year for one of your titles, you were standing on the sand, and it was a it was a after heat decision. You didn't know if you'd won the title yet, and there was like a mayhem and crowd surrounding you, and you were just like, "What's the score? What's the score?" Yeah. And you were just so like, you had just the the focus in your eye was like nothing I'd ever seen. And then you finally realized that you won the title, and it set in, and you broke down for a moment, and you had your minute, and then took a breath and then it was just full on <laughs> like chair up the beach yeah. and like party time you know and it was I got to see this whole panorama of emotions it was really it was special to get to capture that and be there and see that yeah that, that was yeah the, the emotion that goes into it I, I think that's that's why you see when sporting people they break down and when they win something or whatever there's there's so much more than just what people see in the competition there's like all the the backdraft of you know, those days of getting up early and going to training when you don't want to and dealing with dealing with everything. Yeah. It speaks to the sacrifice that I was asking about, mm. you know, it's like getting up at four in the morning and training instead of, you know, sleeping in and eating bacon yeah. or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I think that that's part of the reason why those moments are so emotional. Yeah. There was actually a moment in the, you know, that only I got to see was that morning of, of that world title that you spoke of, I paddled out and it was absolutely huge and I was shitting myself <laughs> and I was in a heat against CJ Hobgood and I remember paddling over a wave and looking back into shore and just to see the all the crowd on the beach and then just as I'd sort of gone up, it was sort of like this huge curtain raise 
of like a, a big show sort of starting and the sun came out and just hit all the people on the beach and like all the people just erupted and and that's a moment for me like for to be able to take a moment in whilst competing that was a really special one for me and it's a perspective that you and CJ and probably Water Patrol saw. I mean, it was such a private moment to be able to witness it. Yeah, and I wasn't talking to CJ at the time because I was, you know, with him. But, um, yeah, it was... Uh, Game face. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it was a really, really cool moment just to... Like, I could... If I could take a picture and, and put it on a screen out of my brain, I could... It's so clear as day. So amazing. Um, well, so I saw, I saw on your Instagram that you went swimming with sharks. Did I read that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how did that come about? What, what was that like? Are you, was that, or was it kind of a, a moment of reconciliation or how did that come about? Yeah, it was weird. It was, um, so what it was, I, I did a, um, I got asked to do a documentary with Taylor Steele and, uh, Mick Lawrence, who are two guys I really like that. Um, obviously Taylor Steele and everyone knows him in the surfing world as the momentum generation and then um, his producer Mick Lawrence they asked me if I wanted to do a, a documentary on sharks and I was like oh do I don't I do I don't I and, um, and then I was like yeah let's do it let's go for it and um, I they were like well this is this is our dream scenarios one, you go down to South Australia and you swim with great whites in a cage. And I was like, okay, I can I can do the cage part. <laughs> that's, that's sweet. And then after we did that, we went to um, Miami and, you know, it was tags and bull sharks and stuff like that with the University of Miami there. And, and then from there we went over to Bahamas and we swam with uh, reef sharks, hammerheads, and then finish it off with tiger sharks. And, um, yeah, look, it was it was confronting only for the fact that, you know, from my incidents in the past, I wanted to see if I had fully healed from that incident. But also, too, I felt like I, I wanted to learn about sharks and because I feel like sharks just get such a bad rap. Um, I wanted to learn and... and and figure out why they're worth saving. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a really cool journey, not only for, you know, learning about doing a doco, but also personally I could go and see if I was ready to to um, come face-to-face with something that I almost got eaten by. Yeah. Are you – I'm curious how you feel about people associating – you with that incident. Like for instance, I'll put it in perspective. We, we had, um, Ireland Baldwin on the show recently and, you know, despite all of her subsequent career accomplishments, so many people still think of her as the person that Alec Baldwin left this voicemail message for, and then it got released to the media. And I think, you know, similarly surfing is so much bigger in Australia than the United States. And if you ask somebody who doesn't follow surfing, who McFanning is may not ring a bell, but, if you say, oh, yeah, you know, the professional surfer who got had the sh-? they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, you're definitely associated with, is that, do you, is that incident going to, you know, kind of haunt you for the rest of your life? Are you tired of talking about that? Look, it, it's funny. There's, I've, I've explained this to people before. Um, you know, I, I have three different versions of it. If it's just some random guy walking down the street, just go, oh, shark guy, I'm like, yeah, whatever. And not and just keep walking and don't pay attention to it. And then there's the media side where you sort of, as we were talking about earlier, you know, building up walls, I can tell the story without breaking down and breaking down the wall. I can just tell the story, but then... And it's concise and kind of almost, you know, preformed. It's like pressing play. (laughs) And And then there's the one where I can sit down and um, if I really trust the person I'm telling, then I can go through the whole thing with them. And, you know, sometimes I cry, sometimes I don't. But, um, yeah, I know if I can trust that person, I know that I'm in a safe place to be able to, um, I guess, if, if I need help getting back to normal, then that person's there to help me out. So it, they're sort of my, my three different stages of telling the story. Um, look, as, as we were 
as we were saying before, like surfing's just something I do. It's not who I am. The shark incident, it just happened. I can't control what people think, so I don't really pay too much attention to it. So I'm not really too fussed about it. Like, it's not like I wake up every day and look in the mirror and go, hey, shark die. You know, it's yeah. not, I'm not that person. Wow, that's really interesting. The, 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 the kind of, that's actually really, that's really an honest way of putting it. We have like the kind of three different ways of explaining it, depending on your level of interest and comfort, you know? Yeah. Um, well, we always like to, we like to end this show by giving guests an opportunity to, to plug something that they feel maybe hasn't gotten enough attention, whether it's like a TV show or a movie or a book or a surfer. Um, like, is there anybody that you want to kind of give some shine to and give a shout out to that you, you feel hasn't got the attention they deserve? Um, they all get it. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, yeah, look, I, it's, I don't know. I'm not really doing any projects or anything like that. Um, I guess it's more about just, just people just being kind to each other, really. We always try and focus. Like, we don't mean to focus on it, but we always take the bad out of, out of something. For instance, you have a look on your Instagram page and you'll have 50 amazing comments where people are super psyched for you and then there'll just be one and it'll just, you know, might just say you're a prick. But you'll focus on that person. You don't even know the person. Um, so I, my thing is just, yeah, just keep trying to focus on the good and, you know, we, we can, the more focus on the good that we can do, the, the better off the world's going to be for the next generations. Uh, when you're, you definitely have a vested interest in that next generation now. Uh, sure do. <laughs> we both <yeah>. do. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Mick, I remember, you know, I, I went over to the North Shore shooting my book project for 10 years straight. Most years I was by myself. One year I brought over my wife, Lisa, and we'd just gotten married and we went out to dinner at Lele's and she really wanted to meet you. And you had just won your title that evening or that day. I went over, I introduced you to her. And I remember you sat down at the table and you took 10 minutes and you talked and you listened and you asked questions to the extent that somebody from your party actually came over and said, Hey, uh, champ, there's, there's a party waiting for you. And, um, I'll, I'll always remember that. I think that was, that was just such a kind thing to do. And it really speaks to your generosity and your character and, uh, you're going to be a great dad mate. So Thanks, really man. appreciate it. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you sitting down, man. I really oh, do. Oh, man, I remember that night. Say hello to her for me. Um, yeah, look, it's, look as, as I said before, look, it, just because you're a good sports person or whatever, it doesn't mean you're a good person. So just try and be a good person. And um, that's... Well, I, the, I, think you're, I think you're doing a good job, man. And uh, I, I wish you all the best. And hopefully our paths will cross soon. And um, stick around. I want to get your address. I'll, I'll send you a copy of the book because I, I, I think you'll really love it. You're a big fan. I can't wait. I can't wait. I always right, love getting the photos each and every year. It's cool. All right, mate. Take care. No worries, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan with sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Thanks again and be sure to tune in for future conversations.